Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In this episode, you meet Karen Brown, the founder of Bridge Arrow. Karen is a results-focused change agent, author, entrepreneur, and speaker with a passion for being the voice of the voiceless. As an experienced operations executive with a rich multicultural background, she's pioneered the path for diversity and inclusion while helping organizations align decision-making with talent needs, market needs, and financial goals. Karen's experiences across global conglomerates include Baker McKenzie, the second largest law firm in the world, Monsanto, Baxter Healthcare, and Sodexo. She's a governance fellow of the National Association of Corporate Directors. She's also served as advisor and board member to World Chicago, Chicago United, National Organization on Disability, Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, among others. Recognizing how many leaders need guidance transforming ordinary talk into meaningful action, Karen founded Bridge Arrow, a global DNI management consulting firm and expert hub. She's currently working on a book about how women are excelling in the male-dominated worlds of technology, startup, and venture capital. Now, Karen is someone that I could talk to all day, but she also, with this interview, um, showed me um, how dangerous assumptions can be. So our first uh, screening call I called her while she was on a business trip in, on the East Coast, and I assumed that she was based out of the East Coast. And so this interview took place via phone, even though she's located maybe five miles from where, um, where I'm located. So I learned, again, not to make assumptions, but I loved this conversation with Karen. I have um, spoken with her since this interview, and I just hope that you get a lot from um, this interview and this conversation that I had with Karen. So good morning, Karen. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Good morning. It is a delight for me to have this conversation with you, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And for some of you who don't know, Karen uh, currently runs her own company, and she has been in the DNI space, the diversity and inclusion space, for a really long time. And we'll get to you know her really, really accomplished career. But before we get there, Karen, um, how did you decide, right, when you were in corporate America, how did you decide that that's where you wanted to work? Did you have parents who did? Were you encouraged um, to, you know, pursue a more professional um, kind of corporate type job? <laughs> I am laughing at that question because if you know my background, uh, there is absolutely um, no logical um, step for me getting here. And, and the reason why I say that is, I was born and raised in Jamaica, West Indies, and I grew up uh, in a family of, family of educators. And so, you know, call me silly, call me uh, unwise, but growing up the way I was raised, I never thought about going to work. I always thought that what I needed to do was continuously get an education. So mm. for me, that meant always get a degree. And it wasn't until I emigrated to the United States in my early teens that I had this open, wide world in front of me and seeing that, oh, there, there is a purpose to getting an education. One needs to go to work. I mean, the American system for me, I, I know, right? So the American way for me uh, in comparison to growing up in Jamaica. Is, and it's not like growing up in Jamaica, I didn't have siblings and relatives who work. But it felt to me that the American way is more about work. Mm. Whereas the, the system for me that I was raised in was more about education, right? Mm. But here it is about, it, it is all about work and everything revolved around work as opposed to in Jamaica for me. Again, not that I was, you know, nobody said this to me. It was just about, you just need to be educated. Mm. <laughs> um, so, so education is central to my life in all that I do. And when I got here, my first job um, was at the age of, I think, 19. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it, it shows to you that, you know, I wasn't raised where you would go to work or you take expectations that you start working like, you know, the American way and my colleagues and friends would start working at 12 and 11 and, you know, 13, 14. I, my first job was around 18. Mm. Um, and I had, I was living at the time in Queens, New York, and um, my first job was as a housekeeper for Kew Gardens Motel. Uh, what? Kew Gardens 
know. Wait, uh, of all the jobs, a housekeeper at a motel? Yes, ma'am. Yep. And at that time, I had already started college. Um, And so, again, everything centered around uh, getting an education and coming here. I needed to work in order to pay for college. Um, And after college, I, you know, luckily got a job for the Marriott International for their Courtyard by Marriott brand. And they were in the early phases of launching that brand. Um, And so, you know, going to college here, what they train you for is to go to work. So that was my first expectation, real expectation, really coming into adulthood that, hey, corporate America is out there and my my role in life is to, to go to work. Mm. So, yeah. But when you first started, so career-wise, but your first kind of professional job was in education. And so I think you still kept the, the you know, the educational spirit. Um, so how did you decide to switch from, you know, being an instructor at a university to then going into a more corporate environment? So my, my real first job in corporate America was, you know, yeah, so I was raised with the founder of the family of educators and, and teaching was naturally the natural um, line or path for me. Um, it was either teaching or nursing, really. Mm. Um, and my first job was, again, in the Marriott International Organization for Courtyard Court by Marriott. So it wasn't really teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was as a, as a manager trainee. And at that time, what they did was you start in one portion of the business, i.e. restaurant or front desk or housekeeping. And then after working in that uh, department for a few years, the expectation is that you would rotate to the next department. Um, so I started in the restaurant department, and then I rotated um, years later, a couple of years later, I rotated to housekeeping and then to the front desk because the expectation was that you become a general manager for one of the hotels. Um, so that was my foray into corporate America and corporate life. And I focused on Marriott because when I was in college, I worked part-time at a local Marriott in the community where I lived. And that's how I was introduced to them. And, of course, that helped me to get my foot in the door with them. And the trainee program, is it like a class of people, a group that like starts at the same time, or was it just you? Oh, it's a whole class of people. I mean, a whole group of people from around the country. Because, I mean, the, the court of the Marriott brand is, is rather, you know, large today. I mean, there are over 100 or maybe a couple hundred or maybe 300 or so brands around the world today. Maybe they're in the thousands. Um, at that time, they were just beginning that brand of the Marriott brand overall. So they needed a lot of people. They needed a lot of trainees. They needed a lot of managers. So you were in, um, you were going through with hundreds of other people at the same time based on the region and your geography. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I was probably a part of a class of maybe 25, 30. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and it was on-the-job training. So the expectation is that you you have the experience, you have the training, because my degree was in hotel, restaurant, and institutional management. Okay. So the expectation is that you have the education. Um, now you're in the real world. They teach you the Marriott way, and then it was on-the-job training. So you're literally a manager on the job. Wow, okay. And then in that class, do you remember, like, how diverse was the was the class? Because this... You know, the management trainee uh-huh. program is a pipeline, right, into the, the various jobs within the corporation. And so do you remember how diverse it was? Gosh, no. But I can tell you it, it was not as diverse in terms of race ethnicity. Okay. Um, because at that time, we're going back several decades, not to date myself, but we're going back several <laughs> decades ago. Um, but, but it was diverse in terms of gender, though. I, I would give them that. Okay. Um, but not less, not as much in terms of um, race and ethnicity as it is today. Got it. Got it. And so for you, as someone who didn't necessarily come from, you know, a family that could 
relate to what's happening in corporate and support in that way. How did you early on find mentors to help you or did you find mentors to help you figure out how to navigate that world? Yeah, I have always been the kind of person who loves to learn. And and I always see feedback as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have always sought out people who can help me learn and grow and, and understand my blind spots. And I truly credit that to growing up in a family of educators because, you know, education is not just about going and sitting in the classroom. It's what you learn and what you're prepared to learn all the time. Mm. So I have always sought out people who I respect and who cared about me. I know that they cared about me. I would seek out their their input on my performance. And I leveraged all the time all the ways that are offered to me by an organization to get feedback. So, you know, there's performance review. I've always thought, you know, I've always taken those things very seriously. Um, There are 360 feedback that people always, you know, organizations always offer. Um, And I take those things extremely seriously because, again, it's a way for me to learn and grow. Um, So my entire life, um, having entered corporate America, I've always built what I call my board of directors who are mentors, um, you know, from different walks of life. And do you just ask, like, do you just walk up to them and say, you know, hey, can, I need, a, I have a vacant slot on my board of directors. Can you, can you sit in on this seat or like, because I think what, what is intimidating to people is finding the language um, to approach someone who seemingly is more accomplished or, you know, is so busy? Like, how do you find the words or what are the words to get someone to, you know, invest in your future? Well, the key word you just said is invest. So when you're asking someone to invest in you, you're asking them to give up or sacrifice time that they could use for themselves or others. Uh, So my first rule always is you need to know something about them. Mm. Um, So I never go to a stranger and say, would you invest in me? You know, could you be my mentor? There is something that I know about them. Um, Usually there's an established relationship. Uh, It may not be deep, but, but we know each other in some way, shape, form, or fashion, or there is some sort of connection. Um, and I would be very specific sometimes in saying, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. You're an expert in X, Y, Z, or admire you because of your experience, you know, on this particular subject. Would you be open to um, me contacting you from time to time for feedback or for input? Um, or would you be open to me contacting you regarding where I might go, um, having a conversation? Would you be open to me having tea with you? And I have never met anyone who have ever said no to me to a cup of tea. Or I always make it very manageable for them. You know, would you be open to a 10-minute conversation? So I make it very simple and easy for them mm. um, because I focus on them and how busy they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never ask for 30 minutes. I never ask for an hour. And once I ask, they always say yes. Mm. So there are people who... I don't, they don't necessarily know me and my work and my experience, but because I'm very clear about my expectations and what my ask is from the very beginning, it's easy for them to say yes. While there are others who, yes, there's an established relationship. Like there are plenty of people who I've worked with. Um, you know, I stayed with Court of America for 17 years. There's a wonderful man um, who's still there till this very day um, who I asked to be my mentor, and, you know, 15, 18 years later, he's still a, a great friend of mine. We work for the same company. We have some connections. We have a bond because we work for the same company. We're both ethnic minorities. I followed his career. He followed my career. And so based on that, there's an established relationship and trust. And, you know, you want to make sure you have some credibility before you go and ask people to invest in you. Mm. Have some credibility first. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. obviously, you you were at Courtyard for 17 years, and then you decided to make a switch in terms of, like, the work that you would be doing. And looking back at the periods in your 
career where you've made that choice, how have you known that it was time for you to move on or seek a new opportunity? So, <laughs> boredom. <laughs> huh. <laughs> That's boredom. real. Uh, <laughs> I'm just being honest. <laughs> um, I find that intellectually I get bored very easily. Mm. And it's easy for me to master something, whatever area that I have responsibility for, um, whatever work I'm asked to do, I'm a very quick learner, and the moment, and I like to, I like to be challenged, uh, and I like huge challenges that require me to really, really use my brain. Um, and, and the bigger or greater the challenge, the more unknown something is to me, whether it's an area, whether it's a department, whether it's an industry, the bigger and more unfamiliar it is for me, the more exciting it is for me, right? Because it's intellectually stimulating. But once I have a sense um, and I have mastered doing what I'm asked to do, I'm ready to move on. Mm. Um, and, and so I've always been striving for more. And this comes from my upbringing and how I was raised. Always be ambitious. So I have never relied on a system in an organization or a process or the world to dictate to me when I should, you know, be looking to move on. I have always navigated my own career path, um, you know, except where there are times when I work for an organization and they disband the department, right? Mm. Those are very rare. Mm -hmm. But I've always navigated my own path on my own time. Mm. And so when yeah, you're no longer that. stimulated intellectually, it's like, okay, maybe it's time to start considering other things. Yeah, it's time. Not even maybe. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so a lot of while you were still in corporate, a lot of the, the work or the focus of your work from what I found in my research was around diversity and inclusion within the corporate space. Um, as someone yeah. who helped corporations um, look at, you know, the diversity of their orgs and like business as a whole, um, what have you seen that... Um, has been maybe like the biggest challenge that people are trying to figure out as it pertains to accepting the different cultures that work within um, within an organization. I know that the conversation now is around like your whole authentic self and bringing all of that to work, right? And so for, for it means different things for different cultures. And so how have you found like internally the conversations around how companies are approaching that um, as it pertains to you know people of color, black people, black women? Yeah, the, 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 the topic of diversity and inclusion, it's, it's such a tough one. Um, and I would say one of the many challenges, because there are many challenges regarding diversity and inclusion in corporate America overall. Um, in fact, there's a study that just came out, I think, this week. I think it's by Deloitte. Um, I don't have the numbers in my head. Um, but it, the essence of it is the struggle that organizations have in achieving progress around diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, one of the major issues, and I've seen this over my career, and my colleagues and I talk about it all the time, is that we, you know, it's treated as a right thing to do um, as opposed to really a smart profit and loss thing to do, mm. which is the way I like to approach it and the way I, I deal with it. Um, and so because people, well, organizations approach it as a right thing to do, it's almost like saying, you're doing me a favor. You, you know, as an ethnic minority, you're doing me a favor. And the very people that they're trying to help are the very people, on many occasions, they alienate. Because again, many people think that you're doing it to do me a favor. Mm. And nobody, no woman wants to be um, considered or looked upon or, or thought of as someone who got a role because of their gender or because of their race or because of their ethnicity. What I have seen work, however, very, very well is when it's positioned as an enabler to business and people priorities. Mm. Um, so there are a number of 
challenges that organizations face, again, one being it's just not positioned as a profit and loss proposition. It's, it's positioned as something nice to do, something that, you know, we, we owe. We owe. It's almost as if we owe this group um, something, and therefore we need to do it. Mm. And then what are your thoughts on um, bringing your whole self to work? Do you feel like you bring your whole or brought your whole self to work? And is it something that's necessary um, to be successful in a corporate setting? It is. And I can share with you an experience from my past of when I did not bring my whole self to work. In today's environment, we call it covering. Okay. Um, uh, and, and frankly, when we hide a portion of who we are, it means we're not bringing, bringing our whole self to work. And in fact, um, 30%, there's a study that out 30% of people are not completely engaged, and that's, you know, that's part of the reason that their whole self is not in the workplace. I remembered um, as a leader early in my career, I never exposed to my teens or my colleagues that the root of who I am is Jamaican. And I never shared with them that I'm from a family of eight, that I have seven other siblings. Hmm. Uh, and that's part of my identity. I mean, the first part of our conversation, we talked about how much growing up in Jamaica and in the environment shaped who I am um, from an education standpoint and from, you know, the way I think and the way I, you know, approach my career. And yet I left that identity out of the workplace. And that significantly affected the relationship that I built or could have built. There are plenty of relationships that could have been forged. There's certainly a more effective way that I could have led my team, that I could have, you know, their behaviors I could have role modeled, I should have role modeled, but I covered a part of who I am, which meant I was not 100% authentic in who I am in the workplace. But why so, did you, why do you think that you, looking back, that you made that choice to not share it? Oh, I know. I know exactly why I made that choice. And I see this a lot with a lot of young talent um, who say, you know, there's a separation between my personal life and my work life. Mm. I'm going to separate them. It's church and state, and the two shall never meet. That's the mistake I made then. Mm. I see a lot of people make that mistake to, to the third day. Um, but, but there are downsides. There are downsides to your career. There are downsides to you personally. And I, I should never have done that. I mean, had I been wise enough, had I had somebody who was mentoring me on that, perhaps I would have been, I would hope and think that I would have um, brought myself, my entire self to the workplace much sooner than I did. Mm. But what it, how do you deal with maybe the fear or the, the idea that your whole self may not be acceptable in the workplace how do i deal with that uh, <laughs> i have to tell you that 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 was something i struggle with um part of my career uh early to mid-career i struggled with that and what i struggled with specifically is my accent mm. <laughs> um and, and i tried very hard early to mask my, my accent, and it was because of the point you just made in that I am not going to be wholly accepted if they know that I'm Jamaican, and, and of course, my accent, you know, gives me away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I struggled in silence. I, I, never, I never shared that with anyone. It was a private... Um, challenge that I wrestled with until later on when I was more comfortable in my career. And it, it was getting to the place of I've established credibility, I have successes behind me that people can point to. So not until I was comfortable in the what I did versus the who I am mm. was I able to then, yeah, was I able to then, you know, be okay with how I sound. Mm. And 
through all that time, you know, people would hear my accent, and, and many of them could not identify it as a Jamaican accent. Many of them thought it was something else. In fact, most people think it's a British accent. Um, but it, it, it was a private struggle that I, that I wrestled with for many years. Again, had I been, I think it has to do with insecurity, to be honest with you. I mean, it really has to. It has to be with insecurity because if I was secure enough in myself and who I am, and if I accepted myself as I am, and I think that's part of the crux of it, I needed to have accepted me as I am. Mm. Um, and even if I wasn't comfortable in my accent, I should have been comfortable enough to talk about it with someone who had probably gone through the same experience to say, how have you, mm-hmm. how did you, but again, you know, we're Monday morning quarterbacking. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But these are the things you learn when you go through life, you know. And that's part of the reason that I'm like really excited about the podcast because someone else who is, you know, early mid career can who's from Jamaica can listen and be like, hey, so this is how she handled it, right? She's had a similar experience to me. Um, she, it's not a European accent that she's worried about. It, you know, it's a Jamaican accent, and you know that I can approach it this way or think about it this way. Um, but while we're talking about culture, let's also talk about you know one of the, I think the biggest things that Black women fret over is our hair, right? Like black <laughs> hair in the work. Like, do you think about? I feel like, and this might be my own biases. I think that there are two black corporate women hairstyles that are acceptable, right? So you either have like the short pixie or you have the long blowout or the, the long blowout. And as, you know, as the years have gone by, we're starting to see, you know, a little bit more flexibility around that. But so do you think about your hair or did you think about your hair? Did it change from when you were, you know, maybe entry level, middle level to when you were in the C-suite? Yeah, I thought about my hair because it's part of my identity. Mm. Um, so, yes, I've always thought about my hair in that context. Uh, but I also, like everything I approach in my life, I think about it from a practical point of view. Early in my career, um, it, it was the long, I had long flowing hair, straight hair, um, and whatever style was in then, I had it. Mm. Um, but then those days, it, it was all about, it, it, it was all about that, you know, corporate, well-talked hairstyle that was um, that that was in then. So I I, I wasn't doing anything too radical um, during those times. Um, now my job entailed that I got to work very very early. Um, I often would stay very late, and so as I matured in my career, it, it was really about practicality and how much time do I have to spend on my hair mm. in the morning. Um, and as I rode through my career, it was always about, you know, it was my, my whole life, it's always about um, playing the part, fitting in, right? Mm-hmm. So in corporate America, there's a certain expectation um, around look, around how you show up. And how you show up is part of, it, it's mental, it's psychological, it's physical. So I was always right there with corporate America. Now, I remembered... Um, Later on in my career, I'd say my mid, mid-career, mid I, I was starting to travel a lot, and I was getting a lot more gray, a lot more gray. And I started graying very early. In fact, I started graying around age 18, and so by the time I reached my mid-30s, I was, you know, a lot of gray. Um, and I noticed my hair was changing. I had very long, thick hair. I remembered when I was very young and my family would wash my hair, they would always tell me that I would scream and cry and bloody murder, you're going to kill me because my hair was so long and thick. And then I noticed in my mid-career, my hair was getting very fine and thin Mm. and curly, which is more like my mother's hair, which is very, you know, very soft and, and thin, more like, you know, Indian texture that's soft and thin. Um, and so I had all this gray, and it was making me look very old. And I thought, you know, I, I can't deal with this. Um, and the travel a lot and the constant, constant maintenance. I said, I can't deal with this. So I remember going in one day to my hairstylist, and I told her, frankly, just to cut it all off. Mm. And I, 
I, I had not thought about whether it would look good on me. I had not thought about what anybody would say. For me, it was just being practical. Mm. I did not have time to keep up with all the maintenance, right? So I told them to cut it off. And, of course, I showed up to work um, Monday morning. And everybody was shocked because everybody loved my long hair. But you know what, though? They loved it. Um, and I had... I'd say for 18 years now, I have been wearing my hair. It's almost like a boy's haircut or a man's haircut. It's very low, mm. um, extremely, extremely low. Um, and to my, to, for me, it has worked out to my advantage. Now, I have to share this story that um, I remembered in my mid-career, right before I cut it off, I, you know, we, a lot of us as women, we try to hide our gray by coloring it. And I remembered I was hiding my gray and I, you know, whatever color they used to hide the gray, they did. I didn't realize it had a tint to it. And I was interviewing for jobs at that time. Um, and I didn't get this particular job. And, you know, I didn't think much about it because there are lots of jobs I've interviewed for that I never got. Fast forward about uh, 10 years later, I ran into my colleague who was at the company and who was part of the interview team. Um, who had interviewed me, and he said to me, the senior executive, they loved me, they wanted to hire me, but because my hair had this reddish tint, they said no. What? I know. I know. Now, I did not intentionally, <laughs> I did not intentionally put a color in it, uh, but clearly it had a tint in it, and majority of them were men, uh, so clearly they could see the color. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I lost the job because of my hair color. So there is, um, you, fast forward where we are today, to be honest with you, we are much more open as a society, and I think people have a lot more um, opportunity to be their individual selves. Mm -hmm. um, it's a lot more acceptable today as, you know, different colors and type of hair and all of that, you know, that, that's more mainstream now mm -hmm. that people can be themselves in the workplace. But I would still say that one needs to be mindful of the environment they're in mm -hmm. because there are many environments where being your individual self and showing up with purple hair is not going to be accessible. Um, it's going to stunt your career growth. Um, it's going to hinder you from being invited to the right social gatherings. Um, it, it will hinder the, the post you get assigned. Um, and it will hinder how people react to you. And I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. I'm just stating that it is. Because I have been a part of those conversations and I have seen these things happen to people all the time. So while we are in a much more open and accepting um, culture and world than 10, 20 years ago, one must still be mindful um, of the, the culture and the environment they in, they're in and, and, you know, where they want to go. Um, and then, you know, as we talk about environment, right, something that happens in the workplace, especially if you get more seniors, that, like, you're communicating with people who are, you know, very different than you and, like, if your communication style is maybe a little more direct or a little bit more assertive, I think, people worry about stereotypes of like, I don't want to be the angry black woman, you know, in the office. Yeah. And so has, yeah. have you ever experienced that where your communication style maybe has been received in a way that you, you didn't necessarily intend? And is that something that you think about? It's not something I think about because of how I was raised and um, it's not part of who I am. So I've never struggled with or, or dealt with um, coming across as the angry black woman or however women are portrayed regarding communication style. I've always been able to, uh, it's just not who I am. Mm. Um, so that's not something I've never had to deal with. And I have to say I've been lucky in that I've never worked with anyone, neither having people on my team or having colleagues or bosses who who came across that way or who were portrayed that way. But I know it is something that, you know, a lot of people struggle with. Mm, it's true. Um, so your work um, has taken you to work for some phenomenal companies and some, um, from what I could see, 
doing some interesting work, but can you think of a time in your career or maybe in a position where you felt stuck, um, be it on a project, be it on a team, and then what you did to get unstuck? Because I think people sit in positions where they are miserable, right? And then they, but they don't know what they need to do to like push and make that first step to start getting some forward momentum. Yeah. So again, I've been fortunate never have to, um, never having had the experience of being stuck. I've always been the person to raise my hand to take on something new and different. Even uh, so, you know, I talked earlier about boredom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it's time to move on, often I know I'm bored, but I also always have a career map of where I want to go. Um, and I've gotten a lot more sophisticated about that over the last 10, 15 years. But from the very beginning of my career, I have always been the person who raised my hand to, um, who have raised my hand to take on additional assignments. And I have found that to be quite useful to my career, to be honest with you. So one of the things you'll see looking at my CV or looking at my LinkedIn profile is is that I've moved a lot. Um, I've I've gone to a lot of companies around the country. Um, And that came about because when I was early in my career, my first assignment at Courtyard Marriott, um, the first one, I would raise my hand to go to places where no one else wanted to go. So in those days, I I went to, nobody wanted to go to Detroit, I did. Nobody wanted to go to Wilmington, Delaware, I did. Nobody wanted to go to Oklahoma, I I did. But because I was willing to do things no one else wanted to do, that accelerated my career very, Mm. very quickly. So I became a lot more rounded, I grew a lot faster than my contemporaries, and I was able to, again, advance very quickly. So not only did it help with my career advancement, naturally that helped with um, my compensation. Mm. Um, That helped with the knowledge that I gained. That helped with the teams of people that I was able to meet. And I grew enormously, both intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, because of this exposure to different people, different things, different ways of doing things. And, and so I would encourage people, um, I mean, feeling stuck, I think, is the personal responsibility um, not to feel stuck. Because mm-hmm. no one, I know this for a fact, no one is going to be more invested in our careers than we will. Mm-hmm. And so it is the individual's responsibility to navigate their own career, and continuously um, increase their knowledge in whatever way that is uh, fitting for them. Hmm. Um, so when you, your last job in corporate, you were in the C-suite, right? So Global Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer um, for Baker and McKenzie. What would people be surprised to know about what a job with that much responsibility has? I think for me, like, I've romanticized what it means to be in the C-suite. I'm like, you get a corner office, and you travel on private jets, and, you you know, we make up all of these things. And so, um, one, tell me that that's true, that you were flying everywhere on private jets. But, no, in all seriousness, like, what would people be surprised to know about having that level of responsibility um, as your work? I have to say that, um, no, the romanticized idea that you have about flying on private jets. Let me nix that right now. I mean, we live in a world today where, I mean, we all have to respond, you know, respond to, we have responsibility to our share owners. And never, never more than now has, you know, the scrutiny of how a company is spending more money is so laser focused than it is today. Mm. So, you know, yeah, not a lot of companies, uh, you know, have private jets. Um, so let, let me tell you what one would be surprised by. Um, the level of responsibility, naturally, it, it just grows as you mature and move up in, in an organization or in your role. Um, and in that job, because my job is global, it was global, um, I had to be awake working all the time, and I had to travel all the time. So I'm working across you know, all different time zones. So I'm up rather early in the morning, whether it's to be in a conference call at, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. 
um, and I'll be on a conference call at 10, 30 at night. So that, that's expected when you had, you know, the job that I had. What people will not expect, because of the level of travel I had, the work is harder. So people romanticize about getting on a plane, going to this country, going to that country. Let me just tell all of you. It is just being in a room with four walls, mm. and you have to work harder because you're there in meetings. There is no time for tourists anything. So you land, and you don't even know many occasions. I don't even know what country I'm in, what time zone I'm in, um, what hotel I'm in. I many times didn't know what floor I'm on because you are so out of it. Um, and you're just working all the time. because, And you're working all the time, and it's harder because you're working on different time zones. Mm. So your stakeholders really don't care where in the world you are. What they care about is, do you have what I need when I need it? Mm. So people do make that mistake and are always surprised um, about... <laughs> how unsexy it is to be traveling the world um, because of your career. Mm. That, that's a big surprise for people. And so now you, you have your own company. What are some yep. skills that you developed while in corporate America that have helped you be successful at running your own company? Yeah, I have to tell you, um, there are particularly two. One is... Um, business acumen um, and the second is financial acumen I you know I credit the experience in operations um, from my Marriott days mm. and I continuously have always um, educated myself around business but the solid foundation of running a business and understanding how a business gets run and the decisions that are made has been really crucial and critical to uh, to my career, uh, my entire career, and particularly now running my own company. Um, financial acumen, I've always had to manage a P&L, um, and that helps in me managing my own company now. And, and there are a variety of ways that I have always um, continuously educated myself because it's not a one and done. It's not that you learn the basics and, oh, I got it. No, I had to continuously educate myself over the years. And I, I've done that um, through all the moves that I've had. As you can see through my CV, I've worked in very different industries and very different companies. Um, and so I always read the trade journal of that organization, that industry that I'm working for. So today working with my clients, I read their trade journals. I read their financial reports, which are all public. Um, I attend uh, the town halls and shareholder meetings uh, in order to understand. I read the, the reports from, from shareholder meetings and calls um, and investor reports in order to continuously build my business and financial acumen. Um, and so it's, it's crucial, and, and it's particularly crucial, especially for women. I didn't learn this until I was leading diversity and inclusion, how crucial it is. Often, women are not given really key, big, meaty roles, operational roles. They're given the soft roles such as, you know, head of marketing, HR, communication, as opposed to big roles um, where they're running a business. It's often given to men. And part of the reason, a huge part of that reason, is because women are lacking the knowledge and experience of uh, business and financial acumen. So... I would say to people, um, you know, particularly women, you know, get that understanding, learn, learn, learn. And, and I also use my mentors over the years to help me with that. Mm. Um, and a lot of, I think, the messaging now, right, when you talk about a big job and you're traveling, you're learning all these things is, you know, burnout and work-life balance. So did you feel or do you feel like you've gotten to a place where you have some work-life balance? Is that even a real thing that people should be aspiring to? I, I like to call it work-life integration. Uh, you know, people get uh, 
caught up with the word balance. Balance doesn't mean 50, 50, 70, 30. It is what it is for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I call it work-life integration because of the world that we live in today and work is being done at all hours of the day. Uh, for some people, it's, you know, around the clock, 24-7. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never struggled um, with it. Um, a, I'm a workaholic by mm-hmm. nature. Um, I got that from my dad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got that from my dad. But I, but I love life. I love um, spending time with my friends. I love, you know, arts and culture. I love, there are lots of things I really thoroughly enjoy. Uh, I love working out. I just integrate it into my day. I find a way to integrate it into my day. So, however, I have to get it in, I get it in. Mm. Um, as I got, uh, naturally, when when I was in early mid-career, I would usually go, you know, after after my work day had ended. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a shift supervisor. I was a shift manager. I had, you know, seven, I would work seven to three, seven to five, or six to five, and I would go after work hours. As I matured in my career and my hours changed and, you know, my days changed and travel um, snuck in, then my pattern would change. What I did um, in terms of my exercise would change. When I went to the opera or you know whatever or the theater, that would change. Um, so it's not a nice, neat package of you know from this hour to this hour is my life, and then from this hour to this hour continuously is when I do my personal things. It's just integrated. And so if I have to sneak off in the middle of the morning or the middle of the day to, to do something, that's what I do. It may require that I work later in the night, and it does require sometimes that I work later in the night. Sometimes it requires that I work on weekends. But that's what work-life integration is all about. You've got to find what works for you as an individual and what works for you as a family mm-hmm. and make it work. So I focus on, and I've always told my team that focus on what you have to deliver and when you have to deliver it. And as long as you're delivering what is expected of you, that's really what matters. Mm. Um, And I know that a lot of women um, that I know are, you know, they think about entrepreneurship. And I think that we also have a romanticized idea of what it means to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) But for you, how did you how did you know when it was time to exit corporate um, and venture out on your own? Oh, my God, that's a two hour podcast. (laughs) 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 Well, no, because I think. A lot of the conversations are around, like, are people exiting corporate prematurely to start entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah. Uh, so I have to be honest and tell you this. So I'd say about 10, 15 years ago, um, people started asking me to do this and telling me to do this. Um, I was early in my diversity and inclusion career, and people saw in me something I didn't see in myself. Mm. And so people would say to me, Karen, you should be a consultant. You'd be really good as a consultant. Um, Karen, you should write a book. Karen, you should you know, join a speaker's bureau because you're so good on stage. And, and, I, and I would say, you know, thank you very much. I appreciate the feedback. But there was a level of security that comes with working for corporate. Um, but it's not the security that made me wait as long as I did. It's a matter of me thinking about my career realistically, and I knew I didn't have enough experience under my belt to go out on my own Mm. so I could be considered credible. Mm. And there was a lot of experience. There were certain things I wanted to complete in my career uh, portfolio, and in fact, I never even thought about going out on my own. So as much as people had been encouraging me for years, I never, ever thought about going out on my own. Um, so part of it was, yes, you know, no, I, I, I need to do a lot of other things. Um, two, I, I, there's a level of security that comes with, you know, getting a paycheck, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, when you're going to get it. Um and, and living the lifestyle that, that I was living. There, mm. There's something comfortable and, and comforting about that. Mm. And, and so I enjoyed, and I was enjoying what I was doing, the way I was doing it and how I was doing it. Mm. And so it wasn't until, a, 
be honest, last year. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> the last year. <laughs> so <laughs> talk about one of the questions you asked me earlier about, you know, getting fidgety. Mm-hmm. I, had, I, I began to go through this experience where for about two and a half years before now, there was this voice in my head. I, I'm very attuned to uh, who I am and, and my purpose in this world. Uh, and I've been that way for 20 years. Mm. So I always listen to that voice in my head, right? And so about two and a half years ago, this voice in my head kept saying to me, Karen, you are here to do something bigger and greater on this earth than you're doing. And, and so I thought, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> and and what, what does that look like? So it, I would have this sort of, you know, conversation with myself, uh, with this inner voice. And it kept nagging and it kept nagging, again, for two and a half years. And it wouldn't go away. And then last year, the voice just kept getting louder and louder and louder because I didn't understand what that meant, in what form that meant. Mm. And I went through um, a series of experiences last year, which we'll have to touch on in a different podcast, Mm -hmm. um, that led me to this is is not a choice. This is a must. You must do this. and, And it is now. Mm. Um, so I had just reached this point in, in my career and in my life. And, and it's really for the first time, both, um, converged at the same time with the same level of intensity mm. where I needed to face some personal choices. Um, and I needed to face some career choices that all met at the same time. And the only choice in front of me was to go out on my own. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't easy to be honest with you the, the what that meant. Uh, and I I was when you're open to when you're open to the universe talking to you mm-hmm. and you're open to understanding what the universe is saying to you, things are clear as bell. Mm. And I happened to um, I met a, a, a someone who turned out to be a fantastic friend and he was doing his work in a way that for the first time made me understood this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be doing what he's doing in a different way because he's in a very different industry. But I saw for the first time what I can be doing and should be doing and what it meant to do my work on a bigger, grander stage for the world. Mm. And it was so comforting. It was the most comfortable experience and feeling in my life, I automatically felt at peace the moment I had the what and the how, because that's what I was struggling with. Well, what, what does that mean? And how do I do that? Mm. The moment that was crystal clear to me, I was at peace. And all of a sudden, all these people just came into my life and I would have never met these people um, who are highly influential, highly successful who have been helping to build my company um, since I made that decision a year ago. So it, it's a really another time for, you know, a lot of layers are underneath that. Mm. <laughs> um, and then last question before the lightning round. So looking at your career holistically, what's the thing about the work that you've done or what you were, you were able to accomplish that has brought you the most joy or pride? Oh, my gosh. By far, the work that brings me the greatest joy is the work around diversity and inclusion. That This work makes my heart sing. Mm. And every day, I get up with a pep in my step, knowing that I'm being the voice of the voiceless. Mm. And I'm able to remove obstacles from the path of those who want to and deserve to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve in their life, both personally and professionally. Mm. So it's very empowering. It's very satisfying. It's very gratifying. And I know that this I will do until I draw my last breath. Mm. That's some real uh, alignment right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm Uh, I'm pretty blessed. 
So the next series of questions are the lightning round questions. Don't overthink them. It's just the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, what's, yeah. one, what's one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? I wish that I was told that life is not black and white. Mm. <laughs> that there's a lot of gray. Mm. It took me a long time to sort that out. And mm. had I known much earlier in my life, um, I would have been a lot more flexible. I would have been able to negotiate um, differently. And I would have been smarter, stronger, better much sooner in my career. Mm. What's the one, the one lesson that took you the longest to learn but has had the biggest impact on your career? We talked about it a little bit earlier, but it is um, about being authentic and being vulnerable. Mm. I, I wish that came to me sooner, mm. but I'm learning the value of it. Mm. What's the one book that has either had the biggest impact on your career or that you could read over and over again? Gosh, I I'm a nerd. I love reading. I always have something that I'm reading. Uh, I stumbled into this book um, maybe about eight, nine years ago, and it's absolutely powerful because it's both very effective in work as much as in one's personal life, it is called The Power to Change Anything. And, um, you know, the, the, the sub, um, the, the underneath that, it is about the six sources of influence. And it's written by five men, one of them being Joseph Grenny, who also wrote uh, Crucial Conversations. And the essence of the book is, and it's all based on thousands of research, it's all based on the fact that as human beings, we have the most powerful way of getting us to change our behavior is through influencing. But we're all terrible at influencing others, and we're also terrible at changing our behavior. So you think about when we want to change a habit, or when you know, we want to lose weight, or we make New Year's resolution every year, how hard it is to attain that goal. But they talk about the six sources that are very powerful to influence someone. So whether it's navigating, whether it's influencing someone in the boardroom, whether it's influencing a colleague, a friend, a parent, um, a loved one, if you apply four of the six sources, preferably all six, but if you apply four of the six, you are going to influence them to either get what you want or do what you want. I find this to be most powerful. I've, I've listened to the CDs over and over again. I've listened to, I've read the book several times. I've written in the book. Um, and, and I read everything they have and listen to everything they have around um, the six sources of influence. Very powerful book. And I talk about it all the time. I think they should pay me for marketing. Books. <laughs> um, <Be good. laughs> and then the last question, and we all know um, that, most career decisions or client decisions, right, about you are made when you are not in the room. So for you, what, sure. do you, what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? Gosh, I hope they're saying a lot of things that are positive. Uh, but of all the things, uh, some of the things I would hope people are saying when I'm not in the room is that I'm kind, respectful, and fair to everyone. Mm. That, that's what I would hope. I mean, that, that would make my father proud. Uh, that would make my mother proud, my whole family. Um, my, I learned from my father that all I have is my name and reputation. So you can take away everything from me, but you can't take away my name. Um, and the reputation is based on how I show up to you, right? Um, and so I would hope that people say I'm kind, respectful, and fair. Mm. And on that note, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I took so many notes from our conversation. Um, but thank you so much for your time and your generosity with your information. Oh, it has been a joy talking with you. Thank you for the privilege. 
I told you I could talk to Karen all day. And I remember after this call, Karen was leaving to go to the south of France to work simply because it was cold in Chicago and she wanted to be somewhere warm. And that was all the reason that she needed. And I remember walking away feeling like, wow, like I wish more people knew that things like that were a possibility and that you could create that kind of life from yourself for yourself, regardless of how you grew up. I remember she said she grew up very modestly. And so to be able to do something like that, she definitely did not take it for granted. Um, but Karen is phenomenal. Like always, I want to give you guys my three takeaways um, from the interview that I got, and hopefully you got some things for yourself. First is, it is important to be the person who raises their hands when nobody else wants to, because that can help impact your career in ways that you don't necessarily anticipate. Two, nobody wants to feel like they got a position or a job because of their gender or because of their ethnicity or their race, and so diversity and inclusion really needs to not be looked at as the, like the nice thing to do, but it should be approached as the thing that's good for the business. And then the last thing that I think stood out to me um, the most was being at peace about the decisions that you make. And I was I loved how she talked about things coming together quite organically once she um, found some peace around the career decisions that she was making. And so that's what I got from the episode. Karen is amazing. I still love her very, very much. Um, but as always, if you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Facebook group at I Choose the Ladder or on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.